What the Flick podcast. Maybe a bit of a reach with the Beastie Boys. I like that song. Oh, I love the song. <laughs> you just had to explain to me why you played it. <laughs> because we're talking about Fantastic Beasts. Yes, well, you are. I am. Um, I have not seen it. My name is Christy Lemire, and this is Alonzo Duraldi. Hello. Hello, and it's just the two of us today. We've had the pleasure of having three of us here quite frequently. The day that we get all four in the room together, it's going to be... A very special event. I don't know when that's going to happen. Because really, I mean, now the holidays are coming and we're all over the place. This is true, yeah. I mean, on a good week, you know, it's having Ben Mankiewicz not in Atlanta is already something of a miracle. And uh, Matt uh, Atchity's new gig has him going to New York all the time. He's currently enjoying the snow while we're here in sunny SoCal. So, um, yeah, one of these days. We'll figure it out. I feel like maybe on Tuesday it's entirely possible that we're all going to be here. That would be so exciting. We're doing a very special Thanksgiving episode on, on Tuesday night. Who, who's bringing a fourth mic? Um, you are. <laughs> I suspected as much. Okay, that's fine. I think. But we may not need that many. Let's, let's count our mics before they hatch. Anyway, Alonzo and I are here. It's yes. jam-packed week. We're going to talk about the new movies that are out. We are going to talk about um, some news including Spirit Award nominations, mm-hmm. including a, a couple of really legendary folks who have left us this yes. week in Stan Lee and screenwriter William Goldman. But let's begin with another Fantastic Beasts movie. They keep making these movies. They're going to make like five of them uh, total. Well, you know, I, I have to say, I really, really did not care for the first one. And so I'm very tempted to kind of pull a Lord of the Rings and bail after the first one, which is what I did with Lord of the Rings movies. But, like, how can you do that? I mean, doesn't somebody want you to see them? Uh, well, as long as I – look, I, Bibbs reviewed it for me at The Wrap, and he talked about it with you today on, on uh, Press Play. So, you know, uh, I'm sure if, if, if the listeners of Linoleum Knife really clamor for it, like, we might go see it. But neither Dave nor I are particularly interested. And we love the Harry Potter movies. Right. Like, loved them all. You know, had a great time with that series. But this one just feels – Kind of, uh, at least the first movie to me felt so airless and so you know unmagical, frankly. Well, in, then, in all the respects. Well, then if that's how you felt about the first one. You would definitely feel the same way about this next one because ah. it is not nearly as fantastic, and there are fewer beasts. Oh dear! Okay. Right, but Eddie Redmayne is back. Of course. Yes. Yeah, so, um, so this time it, it kind of begins where the last one ended with um, Johnny Depp revealing himself as being. Grindelwald, right. the evil Gellert Grindelwald, and um, he stages this really daring prison escape. He's being transferred, he's being sent back to Britain to answer for his crimes mm-hmm. and stages this very daring escape in the process of it. And that opening sequence is actually the most exciting part of the entire movie. Hmm. It is really all downhill from there. What are the crimes of Grindelwald? <laughs> Um, I don't know. They were in part one. <laughs> Wasn't it about, I mean, the, they're, I all, they're all about totalitarianism. I mean, basically well, it's sure, like he's yeah. trying to, he, he escapes to amass his army of pure blood wizards right. to rise up and take over in a world full of half bloods. And as they are known in this franchise, no madges. The muggles oh, okay. who have no magic, gotcha. they are no magics. And so it, it really, I mean, there were shades of totalitarianism and fascism in the first film, but they are really, really explicit about it this time. Like, you see a flash forward to images of what 
would happen under Grindelwald, and it's like trains and fires oh, and ashes, gotcha. and it's hey, not. Put on these brown shirts. <laughs> Kids love that kind of thing at holiday time, so it's not subtle. Okay, but um, so young hunky Dumbledore, played by Jude Law, right, asks Eddie Redmayne's new Scamander to go after Grindelwald, and Dumbledore himself, even though he is the most powerful wizard in, in all of Wizardroom, mm-hmm. um, he can't go after Grindelwald because they had a very special and very intimate relationship when they were younger. Mm-hmm. Right. So, I mean, J.K. Rowling has said that, yes. that Dumbledore is gay, right? But it's not shocking. But she said it in interviews, and it's never been canonical. So if the movies are going to take us there, then that will actually mean something. They take us to the edge of it, I would say. Okay. It is, is very much suggested. Gotcha. You were like, brothers. We were closer. Closer than brothers. We were closer than brothers. <laughs> and uh, they swore a blood oath. It's it's very homoerotic. Okay. Um, they so, exchanged fluids. Yeah, they did. <laughs> but it's still a PG-13 movie now, right? <laughs> right. So, um, so Eddie Redmayne, who has, like, no detective experience, really, has to go after Grindelwald. This is just one of the many plots mm. in this film. There's so many subplots and characters. You have Credence, played by Ezra Miller, who was in the first film. Film, who is trying to determine his identity. He's a very, very powerful wizard, and Grindelwald wants to weaponize him. Mm. There's also, remember Dan Fogler? Yeah, that was my favorite part of the first right, movie. Right, Dan Fogler and Allison Sodal. As I Queenie, say. right? Queenie, right. And they are, they're like our much-needed comic relief, much mm. more so here than ever before. Um, he is, you know, our, our conduit, our, our muggle in, into this world. Sure. And, uh, but they're wedged in there. There's a whole love triangle with um, Newt Scamander and his childhood love Lita Lestrange hmm. that name rings a bell from the Harry Potter world right. and um, and but apparently she's actually engaged to Newt's brother who is an executive or an official rather at the Ministry of Magic hmm. anyway it's very convoluted and there's all this stuff going on um, but yeah it's definitely lacking in magic and part of what was so cool about the first one made it feel a little empty but fun still is that there was an emphasis on all of these fantastical creatures and you know they're able to look at and they're sometimes weird and sometimes frightening but like always vividly detailed and very much of a piece with um, you know the charm of the Harry Potter world the magic sure. I hate to use the word magic but that really is what it is the kind so. of creatures that would hang out at Hagrid's house right right with along with Buckbeak or whoever you right. know and, uh, and Fluffy so um there's all this stuff going on, and it's and then the ongoing threat that the purebreds are going to take over, the purebloods rather are going to take over. So um, I, I kind of like the fact that it's about something, but it's actually about too much hmm. all at once. And you know, once the J.K. Rowling once again wrote the script, David Yates directed. Right. He did the last four Harry Potter movies. He did um, the first Fantastic Beasts movie. Right. And I just have this sense that there is nobody trying to rein in J.K. Rowling's screenwriting urges because there's just everything is in here. Right. Well, you know, the the books got longer and longer because I think part of it was part of it was that she was building a story, but I think also part of it was that she was she had the kind of clout to be less and less edited, right. and that's not always a good thing for an artist. And so, yeah, I'm sure if her if her pages are being treated as sacred text, it's kind of like. Mm, 
she's not a real super experienced screenwriter. Maybe right. have a producer who's able to sit her down and go, okay, love this, love this, let's lose this or save it for the next movie or something. Because, yeah, if you're just overwhelming people with stuff, sure, I'm sure the fans will eat it up because they'll watch these movies ten times and they'll, you know, they'll have charts on the wall with the red yarn and they'll be able to parse what's going on. But for the average moviegoer, it's kind of like, I don't know what the hell that was. Yeah, I mean, I think that the greatest sin is just that it's not that much fun. Mm. You know? Yeah. So anyway, um, but I actually kind of like Johnny Depp in this because he's, he's dialing it down quite a bit. Okay. It's not as, you know, wonderful and whimsical as his Tim Burton film tendencies tend uh. to be. Um, it's, you know, it's, his voice has a, a richness and a villainy to it. And he's, he's understated in this kind of like Billy Idol, al- albino, white, spiky haired, albino eyed thing. It's creepy. I think sometimes for, for some actors, the most liberating thing on on earth is to uh, not have to be liked. Oh, I think he stopped wanting to be liked a while ago. <laughs> well, you'd think. But I mean, like, I think a lot of the characters, there's still, uh, you know, there's a lot of like, aren't I winsome? You know, kind of like the, 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 the diminishing returns of, you know, Jack Sparrow or whatever. Mm-hmm. But yeah, for him to play a full on villain, it's like, great. Then just dig into that. Don't feel like you have to like, you're not playing to the to the cheap seats and you're not trying to like build your fan base you're just actually doing the work right, and then that's, that's part of the pleasure of like black mass for example sure yeah that was a, a chilling role that was he, yeah. he, he dialed it down so um my number is a 4.8 it mm-hmm. is at 44 percent i i wrote about it for RogerEbert.com and i gave it two stars and uh, yeah, this is this has dropped significantly from the reviews that the first film got. That first yeah. film wasn't really <laughs> beloved the way the Harry Potter series is, but yeah. it had like a solid seventy five percent. This is in the mid forties, like forty four percent here. And um, I I hope they figure it out because they got three more of these to go. <laughs> They're not going anywhere. These Fantastic Beasts. Yeah, and I'm sure they'll turn a profit, but but yeah, it is sometimes you know they just. It, you know, Roger Ebert always famously referred to sequels as a filmed deal, you know, yeah. and it's like, are these movies something that we really needed that that Rowling needed to write to sort of flesh out this world? Is she taking us somewhere or saying something that she hadn't already said? Or is this like, a, a, you know, product? Uh, yeah, exactly. It's <laughs> like a, a, a paycheck she couldn't turn down. Yeah. Know? Like why of, of all the textbooks that Harry and his friends read at Hogwarts, why expand on? fantastic beasts and where to find them i guess because the animals seemed cool to play with yeah well especially if you're gonna as you say walk away from the animals in this movie it's like well then why are we here they're there in the beginning there's a really cool like underwater seahorse made entirely of kelp oh there's somebody at the door yes hold hold on let's see yeah i think it's ups or something it it is uh, it's screener season and so packages are (laughs) arriving daily so uh, no we'll just keep going (laughs) um they can leave it on the doorstep so let's move on let's talk about widows uh, which is also out this week which also has an enormous cast yes uh this is actually based on uh a a tv uh project from lydia laplant the woman who created uh prime suspect and a lot of really great sort of british procedural shows and that translation kind of shows in that this seems like it would have been a great eight episodes on HBO, but for one movie, it's got a lot going on. Um, so in a nutshell, uh, Viola Davis plays the wife of Liam Neeson, who is a career criminal, and um, he is killed on a heist. And the, it turns out that, that uh, he owed money to some very powerful people, that he, they were supposed to get the... the 
the the gains of this heist, and they start leaning on her and all of the other widows of the men involved, who are played by uh, Michelle Rodriguez and uh, Elizabeth Debicki, and um, you've got Carrie Coon briefly. Carrie Coon briefly, but yeah, she doesn't she doesn't seem to be like in the crosshairs as much. But Cynthia Erivo becomes Cynthia part of Erivo, the team. Cynthia yes, Erivo, she, yes. She joins the team. And they, that's one of the things about this movie where I was like, oh, if they'd had some more time. I, there's, a, there's a fascinating character there who we barely get to know, Cynthia Erivo. Uh, she was also in uh, Bad Times at the El Royale. She was she's, the best part of Bad Times at the El Royale. She's a real up-and-comer. She won a Tony for The Color Purple on Broadway. She's going to be in the Harriet Tubman movie that Focus is doing. Um, so anyway, um, Viola Davis figures out the only way to get out of this is to stage the next heist as planned and her husband was a meticulous planner and leaves behind these notebooks filled with like blueprints and maps and da 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 so this is all happening then meanwhile you have Colin Farrell who is the sort of weak-willed son of long-term Chicago political power broker Robert Duvall, and Farrell is running for uh, ward... Uh, Alderman. Alderman, thank you. <laughs> Local politics are always so different from city to city. Running for Alderman uh, of, a, of a mostly black neighborhood that he lives on the very edge of, and there's a great like tracking shot mm-hmm. where like the, the camera's on the hood of a car, and you see it go from like this sort of just terrible, like, you know, abandoned buildings, sort of, you know, like where crack deals are made, and within a few blocks, lush, you know, manicured lawns and fences and, like, fancy, you know, mansions. And that's his house. And, and that's, that's, where, that's where he gets out of the And that's where Colin Farrell is, exactly. <laughs> um, anyway, so he's running for office, and, and you know, he's running against uh, a, a powerful black minister, or, a, a, sorry, a, a black member of the community who... Uh, has the backing possibly of the local black minister, um, but you know they both have sort of corrupt uh, things in mind. But uh, you know it's it's a question of who's going to win this election, and how does this tie back to the heist, and da da da. And all of these thi- all of these plot threads come together, and all of these characters have things that are going on. Michelle Rodriguez was running a store that's been um, taken away because the husband had borrowed money from the mob for it. Uh, Elizabeth Debicki becomes an escort and she gets involved with this uh, somewhat nice, somewhat sketchy architect played by Lucas Haas. Who I did not realize was Lucas Haas while I was watching it. (laughs) Who's also in First Man. Yes. Recognizable. He's like the third guy in the Apollo capsule. Anyway, so there's just, there's a lot of different, you know, parallel storylines that all come together. And uh, this is directed by uh, Steve McQueen and adapted by Gillian Flynn. So obviously this is a very... Is it Gillian? Yeah. Okay. The hard G. Gillian Flynn. <laughs> so this is a very A-list project with a lot of A-list performers. And, you know, it is a genre movie that has whiffs of prestige because who's in, of, of who's involved and its its ambitions. And I think it does a lot of things really well. And it's an exciting movie to watch. But it feels overstuffed. Uh, you know, maybe in the same way that, that Fantastic Beasts Two is. Yeah, but but, I, but but good. But good, yeah. <laughs> like you would want to see, you would want to, the movie to be longer just to accommodate all the stuff that's going on. There were moments where I felt like, oh man, <laughs> how are they going to fit all of this in? You know, and I and again, I think this would have been a great HBO like limited series, you know, four episodes or something. But as a two hour plus feature film, it's really good, but it's. It is jam-packed so tight that it doesn't have room to breathe the way that I think it could have, particularly with all these people involved. Yeah, I I loved it. I thought it was excellent. The overstuffed nature of it, which you were not so fond of, I found kind of intoxicating.
fascinating. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yes, a little unsatisfying here and there. I would have loved more Cynthia Erivo for sure. Yeah. Um, there are definitely some things here. Like I, when I was going back and looking through IMDb just to remind myself of who all is in it, I'm like, oh yeah, Jackie, Jackie Weaver. Weaver right. Jackie Weaver is Elizabeth <laughs> Debicki's mom. Yeah, I forgot about that. Um, so there is like too much good stuff going on here, but it is so beautifully acted. And mm. of course, as is true in all of Steve McQueen's films, just exquisitely shot, like yeah. those long, elegant camera work and the long tracking shots that they're not showy in a distracting way, but they're just like immersive and thrilling and, and they, they serve the mood and they serve the story he's telling. And I love the fact that he is using his really powerful artistry, you know, which, which he had applied to much more challenging and potentially alienating material in films like hunger and like shame. Of course he won an Oscar for 12 years a slave. This is a much more commercial enterprise for him. So I like that he is taking all that he's good at and applying it to kind of a formula, but it's still a film that is trying to say something. It has a really strong message about what it's like to be a woman in America, what it's like to be a person of color in America, what it's like to be a woman of color in America. <laughs> yes. What is happening is it's all going on in Chicago right. at a period in time where it's really tumultuous there. And it still is, but it, yeah. it really re- reflects what is happening in the city and has been happening there for yeah. years. And, and, and just beyond the sort of the, the, the levels of gun violence there, this, it's long standing history of, you know, sort of civic corruption yeah. and fixed elections and whatnot. Yeah, Daniel Kaluuya is in it too. Right. Oh, yeah. oh God. Yeah. So good. <laughs> I want to mention Sean Bobbitt, uh, the cinematographer, who oh, is gosh. who is McQueen's go-to mm-hmm. guy. He he shot Shame and Hunger and Twelve Years a Slave. And uh, yeah, this movie doesn't look like those movies necessarily, but it it is exactly right for what the, for the story that's being told here. Yeah, it's it's gritty and intimate, but also there's an elegance to it, and the costumes. The clothes are fantastic. Everything yeah. that Viola Davis wears is just perfect. And, yeah. it, and it's showy, but it goes with the power of her character's personality. And they all have to evolve yeah. because these women aren't criminals. And there's a question as to the degree of their knowledge and the degree of their you know, implicit culpability just by being associated with these people. And also they don't know each other. So they, they have don't. to like trust each other. Right. Oh, John Bernthal is in there. Right. It's one of the, one of the crooks who dies. Yeah. So, I mean, there, there's a lot going on again. I'm not, I don't think this movie's doing anything wrong. I just think that this, this is more than a feature can bear at times. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, heaven knows we've seen plenty of movies with not enough ideas and not enough interesting, yeah. you know, characters or whatever. So I don't, I feel bad faulting it for that, but, you know, I, I think it it, it it's absolutely, you know, should be seen and, and, and it's I really am becoming such a fan of Elizabeth Debicki. She's so good in this. She was the best thing in the Great Gatsby. And she was in what? She's in the second Guardians movie. She's like the big statuesque gold yes, queen that yes, Star yes. Lord flirts with. <laughs> right. What else has she been in lately? I feel like uh, she's been in a whole bunch of stuff that I've seen lately. One moment. Yeah, keep looking. <laughs> so um oh, she was in um The Tale. Oh, which I have not seen, but uh, you, it was a Spirit Award nomination this year, I saw. I believe so. Yeah, we'll talk about that in a little yeah. bit. Yeah, she is She is the um, kind of charismatic, oh, ambiguous horse trainer. Man from Uncle. Oh, right. And uh, Everest. 
She's like six foot two. Uh-huh. And they definitely use that. They use her height. They use each woman's physicality to her strengths as far as pulling off the height. And the height doesn't necessarily go down in the ways you expected it will. Right, it's, right. It's, this doesn't hit the beats that you might expect from a heist movie, but it's got great tension nonetheless. Yeah, it's a drama that has a heist in it. You know? <laughs> yeah, I, I, yeah, that's, that's a good way to look at it. And it's interesting, this time of year where we are in award season and we have a mix of you know, heady movies that are about something, mm-hmm. but also, you know, massively entertaining blockbusters. This kind of marries both of those instincts. Yeah. I mean, I think it is ultimately, you know, it, it does, I think, ultimately come down on the side of being a genre film because it just is like that's just sort of baked into it. But uh, on the, but it's certainly not in the in, it's the kind of genre film that that Steve McQueen would make and that he's yes. got enough other things going on. Uh, Debicki was also in the terrible The Cloverfield Incident. Oh. Um, she was really good in that, actually. Uh, and she was on The, the Night Manager. She's very good in everything. Yeah. So um, my number is a 9.2. I was really impressed with this. I give it an 8, which is, you know, not nothing. You which know, is good from Alonzo. Uh, <laughs> I think 8 out of 10 is pretty strong, you it's know. It's a B. <laughs> so our number is an 8.6. It's at 91% in the tomato meter. And I think it might just be New York, L.A. Maybe it's limited. Maybe it's wide. Anyway, yeah. wherever it is, if it's someplace near you, I recommend going to see it. And, and It'll get to you soon enough. Yes, and please see it on a screen. Oh, it's very beautiful. And a shout-out to Olivia, the dog. Oh. She is the same dog from Game Night. The exact same dog? The exact I same mean, dog. the same breed. They're both no, Westies. That's the, that is the same dog. The card, same dog sad performer. Sad card-carrying Westie. Her name is Olivia. Her she real was, name is Olivia. Real, yeah, she's, she's, in, she's in Widows as, uh, as the Viola Davis' dog, and she was Jesse Plemons' dog in Game of Night. She is this year's, was it Augie? Uh, Augie. Augie, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Remember the year that the Lafka <sighs> Award where they brought Augie to come and do tricks for us that's, and, all, and that, nobody could see it? That's the most starstruck I've ever been at a Lafka <laughs> dinner was when Augie came. <laughs> For me, it was Colin Farrell. But still, okay, so let's move on to... Oh, please, you got to sit with Tom Hardy, didn't you? No, that was not me. No, Layla got to sit with Tom Hardy. She she got to be a teenage girl for for Tom (laughs) Hardy. Um, Yeah, for me, it was Colin Farrell. So, um... So let's move on to, speaking of major stars and awards, baity kind of movies, mm-hmm. Green Book. Yes. Do you want to describe Green Book or should I? Oh, I'll take a crack. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> um, okay, so this is based on a true story, five words that strike fear into my spine when I see it in a movie. The inspiring true story. The inspiring true story. <laughs> so inspiring. So uh, it stars Viggo Mortensen and Mahershala Ali. Viggo Mortensen is a um, bouncer at the Copa, um, you know, not above using his fists to uh, control an unruly patron. Seems to be chummy with a lot of, you know, uh, mob or mob-affiliated gentlemen. Well, say what year it is. Oh, right. Sorry. It's 1962. Mm -hmm. In New York. Yes, in New York City. And uh, the, the Copa gets... The Copa gets shut down, and I'm not, I wasn't clear if it's his fault or not. Something involving mold on the floor. Oh, I couldn't tell if it was because of actual construction or because, like, the mob guys were shutting them down because he beat up somebody who was made. I, the, the movie's a little confusing on that point. Anyway, so he needs a gig and um, gets a call that he should go talk to Dr. Shirley, who needs a driver. And so he assumes it's, like, a dentist or something. But, no, Dr. Shirley is um, legendary jazz pianist Don Shirley, who lives in an apartment above Carnegie Hall – uh, and is played by Mahershala Ali. And, um, you know, 1962 Vigo Mortensen is not like the most racially enlightened dude on earth. <clears throat> 
But they, they have a meeting um, at, at his apartment, and uh, Viggo Mortensen makes it clear that he will not be this guy's valet or manservant, but that he will drive him around, even though this is going to be a tour of the Deep South. And, in 1962. Um, in 1962. <laughs> so he gets the gig, and, um, you know, they clash, obviously, because Dr. Shirley is very cultured, and, you know, also we learn very lonely, um, but very punctilious, whereas, you know, Mortensen is loud and brash and says what's on his mind and is kind of a doofus and... As they make their way through Kentucky, Tennessee, Alabama, um, you know, Mortensen sees firsthand what, like, active racism is like and how, you know, here's a guy who is invited into the finest homes to play piano for, for, you know, the wealthiest people but is not allowed to use the bathroom in the house, you know, stuff like that. And, um, you know, by the end of the film, they're best buds and everyone learns a thing and wah, 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 wah. I uh, really could go another, like, I would love a 10-year moratorium on white people making well-intentioned movies about the civil rights era. I just, it needs to stop. I I don't want to hear that story anymore. I don't want to hear about how, you know, about, about these movies that always give us the one nice white character who learns things so the audience can feel like, well, if they were around in 1962, they would be like that nice Emma Stone and not like that mean (laughs) Sissy Spacek, you know. I just, I find these movies to be such a crock and, and it's, it's such, so full of like phony uplift and trying to like rewrite the struggles of the civil rights era in a way to make modern white audiences feel comfortable. I'm sick of it. And that's what this movie does. And it just super got on my nerves. Um, yes, the, both actors are giving fine performances, but you know exactly where this is going. You know what their character arcs are going to be. They start behaving in ways where it's like, I'm sorry, have you guys ever been paying attention to the rest of this movie? Like, why are you suddenly acting like you're shocked that the Alabama Country Club that has given him a broom closet as a dressing room (laughs) isn't going to let him eat in the dining room? Like, you know, just stuff like that. I'm like, this is... This movie got on my nerves. And yet, I, I agree with you on all of that. I, I totally see everything that you're saying. This is pure formula. It's a multitude of formulas all at once. <laughs> yes. It's mismatch buddy road trip comedy. Yeah. It's, you know, overcoming racial insensitivities and learning something. It's a history lesson. It's based on a true story. It's all these things at once. And yet, the two of them together are so good that it totally charmed me in spite of myself and I actually enjoyed this. (laughs) I did. I really did. And there are things you see coming. For example, Linda Cardellini (laughs) is lovely as Viggo Mortensen's wife. We should mention, by the way, Viggo Mortensen's character is named Tony Lip. Oh, right. Yes, I it's forgot. It's like Tony Vallelonga, but his, his like peripheral mob name his, his is, name is Bronx is Tony, Tony Lip. Lip. Right. And, uh, the Bronx or Queens? I it's, it's the Bronx. The Bronx I was thinking yeah. about that because my dad grew up in the Bronx. He was born in 1942. So he would have lived oh, in yeah. the Bronx at this point in, in more of like the Irish neighborhood, sure. not the Italian neighborhood. But I'm totally certain that my dad must have known people like Tony Lip, you know, <laughs> singing doo-wop on the corners. And so he did. My dad did that. And oh, wow. that, that's such is family lore. Who knows if it's actually true? Um, but... The wife asks him, Dolores, they're, you know, they're, they're living paycheck to paycheck. They're trying to make ends meet. She's working hard to raise their kids. And as he's leaving for this trip where he's, he's never left the Bronx, he's never left his family before, she asks him 
to send her letters from the road. He's like, I don't know what the lore is. I don't know how to do that kind of thing, whatever. And you know from the very second that she asks him to write letters that eventually down the road, Mahershala Ali, <laughs> who is educated and eloquent and sophisticated, right. that he is going to help Tony Lip craft these romantic missives to send home. Like you see these things Yeah, the gears are grinding very loudly. <laughs> you know what's going to happen. I'm telling you, nothing... Nothing surprised me, and yet there were a lot of moments between the two of them just in the car, just gabbing, just mm. bantering, just getting to know each other that were super enjoyable. I, no, I agree. They're terrific. And But all I kept thinking was, God, I would love to see these two in a better a movie. Better movie. <laughs> Let me ask you this. Um, the scene at the end and what ends up being his final performance on the road, how that turns out. How do you feel about that scene? <sighs> I kind of saw that one coming, too. Like, from the moment they walked into the establishment, I was like, okay, well, this is going to happen. And it did. And I even even guessed the coda of it based on... It's like, it's directed by Peter Farrelly, one of the Farrelly brothers. Let's talk about that, too, yeah. (laughs) And look, I'm I'm all for for artists, you know, jumping out of their lane. I'm not, you know, it's like, how dare Peter Farrelly, you know, go from, (laughs) from, you know, dumb and dumber to this. No, look, you know, every clown wants to play Hamlet. People are interested in different things. They wanted different stuff, and I'm all for that. But uh, this guy, I think, has a knack for studio filmmaking in such a way that, like like you said, everything is super predictable, and uh, everything is explained about eight times just in case someone was getting popcorn or wasn't paying attention, you know. Uh, And so it just drives me crazy when a movie doesn't trust us to be picking up things and we have to get these like close-ups of you know a thing happening so then later when it's referred to we know what it was there's a lot of that going on in this movie um you know uh the beautiful car (laughs) and 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 a very well curated soundtrack of period music that are that's not like the super obvious hits of the early 60s um but good ones, you know, good good sort of AM radio songs. Mm-hmm. Um, so as far as the Peter Farrelly thing goes, yeah, on its face, that does seem like quite a departure for him, you know, given that he and his brother Bobby, you know, their bread and butter is like toilet humor and bodily fluids and whatever. But underlying all those movies was sort of a an inherent sweetness, like, mm-hmm. a, like a, a harmlessness. Yeah. Uh, and especially in like Kingpin, for example, it is also a mismatched buddy road trip comedy. Oh, that's true, yeah. So he's, he's kind of made this movie a little bit, you know. <laughs> well, I mean, there's something about Mary. It even has right. some aspects of that, too. Yeah, so, so there's, it's not a total departure, but yeah, it seems unusual. It's unusual that he's you know, directing on his own. It is total formula, big studio filmmaking. It is feel good big studio glossy movies the kind we don't really get that often anymore and it was well made enough for my liking and the two of them were were good enough for me for my liking i mean vigo mortensen once again chameleon like just sure. disappears into this role he's beefy he looks totally different yeah. he gained a bunch of weight mahershala ali lost a bunch of weight <laughs> and they have such great chemistry that, the- that last scene the way it plays out i i, I know it's obvious, but it brings together all the various facets of Mahershala Ali's character's personality so nicely. It's, it's, it's a nice moment. It's nice. It's, it's a feel-good moment, and it's it's powerful musically. I enjoyed it, and I will say I, I brought Nick with me. He did not want to go. I had to bring him <laughs> because the screening was at like 3 o'clock in the afternoon on a Monday. And uh, we had a really good talk in the car. 
afterward, which sounds super corny and cheesy as the words leave my mouth, but look, I'm sure nine year olds need to learn about the history of racism somewhere. Go. I would rather they learn from something better than this. <laughs> but no, I mean, they, 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 technically, there's a lot of things that are good about this. The, the Mahershala Ali's fake piano playing, or maybe he it did was play a, piano. It's a body know, double. But, oh, okay. Well, anyway, that's that's done very well. I just it it just it drives me crazy because we live in this country that is so loath to take a hard look at itself and its history. You know, when we talk about the genocide of the native peoples or, you know, slavery or any of the stuff that we have perpetrated over the centuries to get us to where we are right now, the fact that we don't talk about it and that we don't address it the way like Germany dealt with Nazis after World War II, you know, and had a frank discussion about it and then just like tried to, you know, move past it. You know, there's never been a truth and reconciliation hearing in this country ever. So for us to then make these sort of namby-pamby feel-good movies about 60s racism just drives me up the wall. And so maybe that's barring me from from appreciating the feel-good aspect of this. And yeah, I mean, from a, on a technical level, this movie is doing what it's supposed to do. It is what it wants to be. It's glossy. It's zippy. Ve- it's very glossy. It is, it is very audience-friendly. And yeah, I'm sure... Audiences will love it, and it will probably be a, a contender in, in the awards conversation. I'm totally certain of that. Yes. But I just found it all to be so utterly artificial and 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 just exasperating. I could not deal with it. I hear you. Okay, so um, we're kind of saying a lot of the same things, but we have very different numbers. So my, yes. my number is seven point seven. <laughs> I said a five point eight, just because. I mean, yeah, the, the the actors are giving it their best shot, and you know, it's it's art directed to a fairly well. The, all the sixties <laughs> period stuff is right. So I mean, it you know, it it, it is well. God knows, it's well intentioned. And then there are title cards at the end to show you that these were indeed real people, and <sighs> here's what they looked like, and here's what happened to them, and all that. That, yeah, so. I, yeah I, it's funny. We, we were discussing this week on on who shot you, the whole Olivia de Havilland lawsuit about feud. Mm-hmm. And it's like she, her case raises valid points about the fact that it portrays her in a way that's completely false. Uh, but obviously to allow her lawsuit to win would be to place such an a, 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 impossible burden on people the biopics would become next to impossible to make so i I don't want that to happen but then i see a movie like this and i think oh god if we could not have some biopics for a while (laughs) because they're all such lies think about think about how much we learned afterward about like the bullshittery of bohemian rhapsody for instance yeah 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 i just feel like so many of these movies it's like why bother why are you telling this quote-unquote true story if you're just going to embellish it and turn it into something that's convenient dramatically convenient just like like, you know, it's a terrible movie, but, you know, remember The Greek Tycoon? No. It was this 70s movie with Anthony uh, Quinn as a Greek tycoon and Jacqueline Bissett as a uh, former first lady, now widowed, who mm. marries the Greek tycoon. Hmm. Who, who could, could they be? be? And her name's already Jacqueline. Exactly. <laughs> but, like, all the, the names are changed. It's like, but, but, but it's so obviously what it is. And it's like, just, just make it, make it. Fake it, you know, like, and stop making us think that, that you're telling us a true story because you never are. I guess it's just meant to give it like an extra layer of heft. I suppose. You know. I do want to go out and pick up some Don Shirley records, though, because... I had never heard of him prior I, to this. Had I, you? I knew the name, but I didn't really know his work. But the, but the bits I heard in the movie, like, oh, this guy's good. Yes. Um, his movie, maybe not so, depending on who you are. But anyway, <laughs> um, so let's move on. We have actual movie news yes. to tell you about. Um, today, the Spirit Award nominations came out. Yep. This is the day that Alonzo and I like. We are fans <laughs> of the Spirit Awards. Yes. And increasingly over the years, we have found that 
the Oscars and the Spirit Awards are kind of starting to line up with each other a little more. I, I suspect that's because the Oscars have maybe now they're embracing more challenging indie fare. Who knows? I, I don't know. I think it's the studios are more and more getting out of the business of like adult drama for one thing, you know, and stuff that isn't going to sell, isn't going to have a huge opening in China. Uh, so I think the spirit awards have sort of filled in that gap of the kind of sort of, not necessarily prestige, but challenging and interesting and well-acted, you know, kind of films that the Academy leans to because they can't in good conscience, you know, give an award to Avengers Infinity War, you know. <laughs> it is over $20 million right. in its budget. So, um, a movie we reviewed on What the Flick, We the Animals, yes. led everything with five nominations. Nice. You know, that, that's great. And, and I'll tell you, the, I know that studio is really, it's The Orchard. Is, that makes sense. Yeah, is really backing it because I think I've gotten like three screeners at home yeah. <laughs> for that one already. But I've been talking it up. I, we screened, it was a U.S. centerpiece film at Outfest this summer. Um, and yeah, I think it's a beautiful film. And Raul Castillo, who got a Spirit Award mm-hmm. nomination, uh, gives a terrific performance. Uh, so yeah, I, you know, again, I think most awards are a crock. And, and as much as I love, I love the Spirit Award nominations more than I love the awards themselves because, um, you know, the nom- I've been in that room for the nominations and you've got people who have seen hundreds of movies passionately debating, like coming down with those final nominees is like, you know, it's such a rough road to get there because all these opinionated people from various parts of the industry really are pushing the stuff that they believe in. But then the membership at large of Film Independent gets to vote, and while they have access to all the nominees, you know, come on, people are busy. You know, they if they've seen one movie in a category, they're going to vote for that movie. And so yeah. usually the winners at the Spirit Awards are like whatever the biggest movie was that year. Um, and so I think for for people who are in who are great in much smaller films, you know, the nomination is itself the win. You know, I don't think I don't know how many people in Film Independent last year saw like Life and Nothing More. Right. You know, to vote for Regina Williams. Which is now out theatrically. It so is. something else that happens with Spirit Awards is that they will sometimes nominate films based on their festival. festival opening. Yeah. And so what happened last year with The Writer. Right, exactly. So The Writer had a festival run last year, but it had a theatrical run this year. Yes. So that's why you saw it then. But it's the kind of thing where really not a lot of folks had seen The Writer. So they're like, what's The Writer? So there's always something that people haven't seen that, yeah, as you say, just the nomination can be a, a big boost yeah. in that well, regard. The, yeah, for me this year, that was Socrates. I don't know what that is. Socrates is a movie about a uh, Brazilian teenager who is living in poverty and his mother dies, and it's how he tries to fight to keep the apartment that huh. they live in. And, okay. it, and he's... He's kind of closeted, and he has hmm. an affair with a guy who he thinks is on the same wavelength as him. And it's just it's a it's a, a snapshot of a life in transition. Fascinating. And so, what the the actor in that Carlos Mayeros, I want to say, is one of the nominees. Anyway, your best feature nominees are Eighth Grade, First Reformed, If Beale Street Could Talk, Leave No Trace, and You Were Never Really Here. I don't love if you were never really here the way a lot of people do, but I know a lot of people do. So it's just technically so immersive in terms of like the sound design and the way sure. it's edited. It really puts you in his brain, and it's it's a very physical, like tortured Joaquin <laughs> Phoenix performance. Yeah, no, as a mood piece, absolutely, it, it knows what it's doing. One thing that's so cool here, though, is in the best director category. Three of the five nominees are women. Wow! So you've got that's never happened before. You've got Deborah Granick for Leave No Trace. 
Barry Jenkins, if Beale Street could talk. Tamara Jenkins for Private Life. Lynn Ramsey, you never really hear. And Paul Schrader for First Reformed. That's a that's a very cool lineup, especially because like you know you've got Schrader who is this sort of like you know old school lion of indie film, and his career has definitely had some ups and downs. But this is one of his best films, and it, it, it's, it's exciting that he's still he's still out there doing his deal. I mean, like I did a I did a tribute to him in 1995. Wow! You know, at the USA <laughs> Film Festival in Dallas, and actually. It, that year was the 25th anniversary of the festival, and part of the reason that we honored him was because at the, fir- the first two years of that festival, it was curated entirely by film critics, including Roger Ebert, ah. and one of them was Paul Schrader, who right. started as a critic before becoming a director. And so, yeah, so it's cool that he's still around, but like, you know, yeah, Tamara Jenkins, Lynn Ramsey, Deborah Granick, these are all very talented women who, you know, I, I wish, well, Lynn Ramsey puts them out pretty regularly, but like both Deborah Granick and Tamara Jenkins, I wish got to work more. I'm sure that it's an uphill battle as always for women to get like funding and, you know, that kind of stuff. And, and Barry Jenkins obviously is of course is very much a rising star. Right. And maybe, you know, maybe Tamara Jenkins only wants to make a movie every 10 years. Maybe it'll be easier for her now to make sure. another movie sooner because private life is so great and yeah. so well acclaimed. Did Barry Jenkins win this for Moonlight? Do you remember? I think so. Okay. can't remember. Anyway, um, best first feature. And this is, an amazing category. Mm-hmm. Um, Hereditary, Sorry to Bother You, The Tale, We the Animals, and Wildlife. Now, The Tale was an HBO movie, but I assume it did a premiere at Sundance or something. Is that I how it qualified? Yes, yeah. The Tale is um, starring Laura Dern yeah. as a woman who goes back and looks at her life and um, recognizes that this relationship she had with her horse trainer, played by Elizabeth Debicki, mm. and um, a running coach who was her lover, that maybe that wasn't all on the up and up. Yeah, or the way she remembers it, yes. right? Yeah. And so it's, it's about memory and the stories you tell yourself to get through things, and it's it's chilling. It's beautifully acted. I've heard such great things. I need to watch it. I bet it's on HBO. Go. Yes. Um, um, I, I was also impressed with the Cassavetes lineup this year, A Bread Factory, which we talked about. We did. Uh, and El Septimo Dia from Jim McKay, who I think is a, another great filmmaker who doesn't work nearly Have often enough. Have you seen enough. that? Uh, Dave did and it's was a so big fan good. of it. I need to, yeah. If you see it, let's talk about it, because it's excellent it's okay. like a total slice of life and it's it could not be more timely it's about mexican immigrants yes. living in new york and brooklyn and just like struggling to make ends meet as delivery guys or whatever but on sunday they play soccer right yeah yeah, no no yeah dave reviewed it's it so and, good. and loved it and i'm a huge fan of mckay's girls town so yes. I'm, I'm glad he's back never going back which we talked about on, on old what the flick which it's was fun. hilarious this socrates movie that apparently i got to see <laughs> so is, is alex morado american or the the filmmaker or because uh, when a foreign language film right. is up for the Main Spirit Awards, like it means that the producer, like what is it? It's, I think it's like director, writer, producer. Two of the three have to be. I can't remember. US based whatever it was, it was qualified. Gotcha. <laughs> uh, and Thunder Road, which I've heard good things about. It is good. Yeah, Jim Cummings as a, a cop who is dealing with um, the death of his mom, and he's got to raise his young daughter while also dealing with the wife he's divorced from is based on a short, the opening shot in Thunder Road is all one long take of him at his mom's funeral, delivering this incredibly awkward and cringe inducing eulogy 
at her funeral, and that was the short from which he based this feature. Oh, okay. So, anyway, that is uh, that. Some, Anything else cra- grab you in these? Uh, some cool first screenplay nominations. I know you were thrilled about Thoroughbreds. I, I've loved Thoroughbreds for a couple <laughs> of years now. Yes. I'm happy to see it get its due. Uh, I was thrilled. Uh, Quinn Shepard is nominated for Blame. Blame uh, I, I remember when she was a, a young actress. Uh, she was, a, like, not a child star, but certainly, like, a child character actor in a Christmas movie that I love called Unaccompanied Minors. It was an early oh. Paul Feig directorial effort. <laughs> She's now a filmmaker, so that's cool. I really need to see Madeline's Madeline. Everybody keeps telling me that uh, that's a that's a must. When I, you do, let's talk about it because Helena Howard, who is the star of it, who kind of helped collaborate on making it all come together, is mm-hmm. just a total find. She's cool. amazing. Uh, I was delighted that Regina Hall got nominated yes, for Support the Girls, and clearly, uh, I mean, you know, this was a very competitive year for actress. They they had to bump it up to six uh, nominees, and still, sadly, weren't able to find room for Melissa McCarthy and started to bother you even though Richard E. Grant did get a nomination uh, but you know when, when they go to six you know that that was like a lot of a lot of back and forth haggling <laughs> so you're six and best female leader Glenn Close in The Wife Tony Collette in Hereditary Elsie Fisher in 8th Grade Regina Hall in Support the Girls Helena Howard in Madeline's Madeline and Carrie Mulligan in Wildlife and that's a really cool cross section of like young up and coming actresses and veterans and it's a nice cast a nice group in terms of diversity and yeah. the kinds of movies that they're in so that's pretty amazing yeah um, I, I, you know and even as somebody who has not been a particularly much of a fan of Carrie Mulligan I thought she was extraordinary in Wildlife yes and I am really excited about the cinematography category because you have Mandy and Suspiria whatever all the batshit crazy phantasmagoria movies that I enjoy are both in there I'm thrilled for Sayombu (laughs) Mukdiprom not because I like Suspiria but because he shot um, Call Me By Your Name and Uncle Boonmi who can recall his past lives he's got range Um, (laughs) and you know Diego Garcia's uh, work on wildlife was great so I mean and and, you know that's another one for We the Animals so that's that's yeah I mean you know there's there's, apart from my own personal beef with Suspiria I'd say this you know there's nothing that I was sort of appalled by here. Um, Suspiria also got um, what they call the Robert Altman Award, yes. which is for Best Ensemble. So that means all the various incarnations of Tilda Swinton <laughs> will be there. She gets four trophies. Mother everyone. Um, <laughs> is Nancy, is that a movie with, uh, with Andrea, Andrea Riesborough? Okay. I, the, the other one besides Mandy. I knew, I rang a bell, but I, I, I didn't see it. She is Nancy and Mandy. Mm, she is indeed. So it's, it's a good mix. It's a good group. So the Spirit Awards are the day before the Oscars. Well. Oh, I just noticed. What's that? Josh Hamilton for eighth grade. Awesome. But a little late to nominate him for Take Me to the River, which he really deserved. I don't think I know yet. that. Oh, my God. It's on Netflix. I've been I've been trumpeting this movie for okay. years. Take, Take Me to the River, River was my favorite film of 2017? No, 2016. Um, it is a, a very... It's a, it's a family drama that at first just sort of seems whatever, but, like, it just ratchets up the tension. Um, you know, it, it's, it, it's about uh, this, this family from L.A. The parents are played by... Oh God! I'm, I gotta look this up. Look now. it up while you're talking. Yeah. He's also very good in Blaze. Have you seen Blaze? I've not seen Blaze. What's about Blaze? The um, the country music singer songwriter. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. The Ethan Hawke directed. Right? Yes, yeah, he's I've good in that it. too. Uh, yeah, take me there. Uh, oh yeah. So uh, 
Logan Miller plays a, a teenage gay kid from California. His parents are Robin Weigert, who I adore, and uh, and Richard Schiff, and they travel to a family reunion in Nebraska. And on the way there, the mother's like, maybe. You know, like, don't talk about, you know, the gay stuff. Tone it down a bit, whatever. And then, um, I don't even want to tell you what happens. Okay. It just, but it, 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 I'll put it this way. This is, a, this is a dysfunctional family thriller where Dave White, who can watch any number of beheadings and disembowelments in a movie, got so uncomfortable. Oh, because it just reminded him so much of, like, all the stuff that he got away from in his family. We've talked about this a bunch on on. Uh, on uh, Linoleum knife, but the but Josh Hamilton plays this uncle who is so like seemingly just like a you know placid dude, but like there's so much going on under the surface, and these scenes that are innocuous on one level, but just like terrifying on another. It's a really great movie. Okay. I'm always telling people to go see it. Good so to know. It's on Netflix. Go see it. I'd never heard of it. Anyway, this is a good group of, uh, of nominees. Spirit Award Day is always a really fun day. You and I have had the pleasure mm, of attending. Yes. It's on a big tent on the beach the day before the Oscars. Everyone's in a good mood. Yes. Lots of booze. Lots of booze, yeah. Happy hour begins at 1130 in the morning with mimosas. <laughs> it's a tasteful morning drink. Yes. So um, we've got that for you. Also, we have some sad news. Mm. Um, we lost a couple of legends this week. Stan Lee died earlier this week. Marvel Comics mastermind. Yes. Stan Lee, you are much more of a comic book fan than I am, so yes. please eulogize. Well, yeah, I wrote a, a piece for the uh, for the rap about him. Um he really kind of occupies this interesting place, not just as a creator or co-creator of so many legendary characters, but um, also as really kind of being this public face of the company. He was sort of the Walt Disney of Marvel in terms of, you know, Disney would, you know, host the TV show every week. And he was very much kind of front and center. You know, he would put his signature on comic books that he had nothing to do with, you know. Um, and, and so Stan Lee would communicate with the fans directly. He had this this monthly column that would run a full page in all the Marvel comics called Stan Soapbox, you know. Um and so he just kind of became this personality and uh and 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 so this is before the internet and you know when when there was really this kind of wall between like fans and you know the 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 people in the industry but you know he was somebody who, who it really felt like was talking to the people who bought the comics and you know not just in in the comics but like if you bought the books like origins of marvel comics and son of origins he wrote the forewords and like the introductions to each section and you know obviously a lot of it was mythologizing in terms of he would kind of put himself squarely at the middle of every good idea marvel ever had you know and comics historians were like mm, well really it was more Steve Ditko and Jack Kirby or whatever, you know, but, but he, he, you know, brought a lot of that personality to the stuff. And so, you know, as somebody who's gone to Comic-Con for years, like he was always the biggest star in the room, you know, whenever he would show up somewhere. But then once the Marvel movies became such a huge deal and, and it really became kind of the dominant force of popular culture right now, you know, mainstream audiences got to know like the Stan Lee cameo. Right. Um, my friend Todd Alcott on, on Facebook said, RIP Stan Lee, the highest grossing actor in the history of cinema. <laughs> I mean, I do not know anything at all about comic books, really. I mean, my kid has 
kind of into them a little bit. But like, mm-hmm. I don't have the childhood history of my own that you and that Matt have, for example. But just purely from the cameos, you get such in those brief little snippets this joy, like a buoyancy. Yeah. You know, despite his age, he just seemed timeless and ageless, and just the, there was a love and an enthusiasm that would shine through even in the briefest of screen moments. Well, if you get a chance, go back and I'm sure it's on YouTube. Uh, his cameo in Mallrats, <laughs> which was way before like the the ones that we've all gotten to know in the the, the MCU. But yeah, he plays himself and gives you know he he's almost like the Humphrey Bogart in Play It Again, Sam. Like he gives. <laughs> this really good romantic advice to uh, the Jason Lee character. It's been a while. I don't remember. Um, but, you know, it's like Kevin, Kevin Smith clearly was clearly, like... Clearly, yeah. You know, it's, it's funny. It's like it's his second movie and it's his first sort of, you know, quote-unquote big movie. After Real movie. Yeah. And so, yeah, so it's like, I, I love that one of the first things he did once he had some pull was like, Get, I want to Stan Lee cameo yes. in this movie, mm-hmm. you know? Um, so, yeah, it's just kind of crazy how... Like, you know, you know, Marvel changed the comics industry in the 60s, certainly in terms of like the way the characters were. You know, this was the first time that we got superheroes who were neurotic and who were, you know, who had financial problems and maybe didn't have secret identities and, you know, lived in, you know, lived in a high rise in New York City, you know, and not Gotham or Metropolis or whatever. Like there was a lot of stuff that 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 felt fresh and new, um, you know, compared to what what DC was doing at that point. And, uh, and then, you know, that he sort of kind of made himself this sort of company mascot and really was, you know, always in direct communication in, in one way or other with, with the fans and stuff. Uh, I'm glad that he lived long enough to sort of see what a phenomenon all this stuff would become and, and how important it all has, has been. Uh, even if you don't like those movies, it's like, you know, they're huge and they had to come from somewhere and yeah. they, they came from these, this, you know, this this medium that no one took seriously, right. you know. He, he did. He created a medium. Yeah, it's true. He created an empire in a lot of ways. Anecdotally, I noticed a lot of folks on Twitter with great stories about, you know, they would send a letter to Stan Lee <laughs> yes. and he would write back or, you know, I want to say, was it Matt Singer who had a story about how he accidentally or his brother accidentally, he sent his brother's comic book trading cards oh, yes, and, and, he, and he signed, he them, signed them, them and sent them back so even before twitter he was smart and probably it was genuine and it yeah. was heartfelt to have that kind of connection with the readers when i was 12 years old i uh was in new york and i made my dad take me to the offices of marvel comics there was like no one there except for a receptionist but she was very nice and gave me a stack of comics and sent me on my way <laughs> But you remember that day. So, so from the top down, yes. that kind of uh, personal vibe. Absolutely. I was I was expecting something along the lines of like when you when you would see those old cartoons of like behind the scenes at Mad Magazine and they would draw this like crazy office with stuff going on. Like I thought there would just be like, you know, rows of drafting tables or something. But no. So that is, he was 95, he was? 95. Yes. And he died here in Los Angeles at Cedar sinai Hospital. So very sad, but uh, an amazing life. And he's, he will still be turning out. He's, he has a cameo in Ralph Breaks the Internet. He does, which we will talk about next week. That's yes. true. He is in that, self-deprecating. So um, also, this just happened this morning or maybe last night. William Goldman yes. died. Legendary, Oscar-winning screenwriter. There are probably movies that you quote all the time and don't realize <laughs> that you are quoting a, a William Goldman script. He, he won Oscars for Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid and for All the President's Men, which couldn't be more timely these days. Oh, yeah. <laughs> he also wrote... 
the book that was the basis for the Princess Bride and the script for the Princess Bride, which is just, you know, ultimately iconic in terms of his his quotability. Um, I guess he, he adapted the script from Misery. Yes. Marathon Man, he wrote. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, really hopped around a wide variety of genres and was amazingly. Al- and was also a really great observer of the industry. Uh, I read his book, Adventures in the Screen Trade, right. which everyone should. <laughs> and what, what's the famous line from that? Nobody knows anything. <laughs> uh, That's true. <laughs> yeah, it, I mean, it is. Like, the, there is no formula for success, there is no guarantee that a movie is going to succeed or fail based on anything that happens or, or who's involved or what it's about or anything. Like, there's, there's constantly an element of surprise and, and yeah, nobody knows anything. And, and as Larry Karaszewski said today on Twitter, that's a really liberating mm-hmm. uh, instinct, which means, like, don't second-guess yourself and don't try and like mold your movie to this sort of idea of oh this is what's going to make it profitable because you don't know nobody right. there's no if, if if people if there was a if there was a formula then everybody would just hew to it all the time right everyone fails yes. you have to fail yeah and learn how to fail well yes he was born in highland park illinois suburb of chicago started out as a novelist in 1957 and uh, yeah won two academy awards and he just died today at age 87. He also, so. he wrote a book about uh, Broadway called The Season, which I have not read, but several people on my Facebook this morning were talking about how oh. great it is. Um, yeah, so he was a, a very keen observer of the the world in which he toiled, but also, you know, a very great screenwriter. And, um, you know, I always recall that uh, rumor has it that he really wrote uh, Goodwill Hunting. No, it fell from the sky into Matt and Ben's laps, and that's how they got it. That is that is the lore. So anyway, a couple of big losses in Hollywood and beyond today. Yes. Um, so next week is also a really jam-packed week because it is Thanksgiving week. We're going to do the show for you guys a little earlier. We're going to do it... At 8.30 p.m. on Tuesday, (laughs) before everyone scatters hither and yon for Thanksgiving or whatever. Next week is crazy, you guys. Next week is like Ralph Breaks the Internet and The Favorite and Roma. And Creed 2. And Creed 2, which we saw yesterday. And um, The Christmas Chronicles. Oh, yes. (laughs) On, uh, On Netflix, it is indeed. Uh, yeah, yeah. There's a there's a lot going. Uh, shoplifters, shoplifters. I will have seen. Yes. Uh, which I don't think we're going to be able to. Unfortunately, it screens but Monday night. I know, but I have something else. I'm I'm totally buying a ticket. I mean, yes. I'm dying to see this movie. and I want to see it projected. It looks but, amazing. Uh, yeah, there's a lot happening, uh, which is typical for Thanksgiving. Right. This is when a lot of big movies open. So something for everyone. You got your, your big family movies and your big awards contenders, and I'm very excited to talk about the favorite and yeah. Roma with you because <sighs> those were like maybe my one two, but I. I don't know in what order. Wow. But okay. burning is burning is gonna be up there too. Yeah, and you know what? Paddington too. Let's not forget Paddington too. <laughs> Damn it. So it's uh yeah, it's a jam-packed week, so and it's entirely possible that all four of us might be here next week. <gasps> we'll see. Fingers but, crossed. Yes, um, buy a lottery ticket that day. But anyway, but thank you. Hopefully you could hear us better this time. Yes. I think I understand things. Stop harassing better. Christy. We're all learning <laughs> on the fly here. So just be patient with us, in, and we thank you for that. Yes, in, in between taking my kid to hockey practice and soccer <laughs> practice, I'm also learning how to be an audio technician. And, uh, <laughs> and yeah, we, we're, we're not an Apple podcast yet, but if you put com slash feed into your podcatcher, you, you should get the uh, episodes popping up. And 
and just real quick, I want to plug for myself since yes. it's that time of year. My book, Have Yourself a Movie Little Christmas, now's a good time to pick it up. So you know, uh, gives yourself plenty of options of things to watch throughout the month of December if you are a fan of Christmas movies and are need to see something that isn't made by Hallmark. Um, you know, it's, uh, it also makes a, a lovely stocking stuff. And where can one procure this fine piece of literature? Uh, well, anywhere books are sold. They probably don't have it on the shelf, but if you ask them for it, they'll order it. Uh, you can get it from <laughs> Amazon, of course, and it is also available uh, as a Kindle from Amazon. There you go. So uh, get yourself, have yourself. Uh, a movie, a little Christmas. <laughs> um, thanks again for everything, and uh, we'll see you really soon next week. Bye. Bye.